Alright, welcome back to another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. It's been a while. It's been a while, Nick. Well, I mean, I feel like... Yeah, I, I wanted to sing it, but I didn't want to get us copyrighted, so I just went with like just saying it instead of singing it, but I understand Sorry, where I you're coming you. from. I feel like two weeks shouldn't be that long in the podcast world, but it did feel like that, didn't it? It felt like a while. I I kind of, this is almost like a little therapy session, is it? Is it not? You know, they're just talking about these movies, <laughs> you know, a little therapeutic for me. So I did miss it, um, but life just, you know, got in the way. We both were quite busy, so it happens, but we're back stronger than ever. It's interesting that your therapy is like talking movies. Like, I imagine you go to an actual therapist office, like, hey, so this week, you know, watch a couple movies for we can talk about it. And the therapist is like, Nick, uh, you want to talk about your personal childhood or like really hit on the hard, heavy stuff? He was like, nah, man, I watched Transformers Dark Side of the Moon. Great movie, actually. I think people underrate it. Have you seen Crash 1996? Um, <laughs> very, very good erotic thriller from David Cronenberg. Uh, yeah, don't check be out my Vince Doctor box, with the 2006 one, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It just evolves to being like every week it's less about you and more like, dude, here's some movies I watch. You should really watch these, Doctor. At the end of it, my therapist would probably have a degree in film. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, you become the third co host. <laughs> we are back. Um, and back and stronger than ever. Very interesting time in the world as far as cinema and entertainment goes. But, gosh, how have you been? What you been watching? I, uh, I decided to go. And watch all the Mission Impossible movies in uh, Ahead of Dead Reckoning. Gotta say, wonderful time. Wonderful time. The best active franchise that we have right now? Probably. What, like, what gives it a run for its money? As far as consistency, I don't think there really is anything. I saw the new Mission Impossible too, but I just wanted to say real quick. I'm not going to be spoiling anything. We're going to be no. talking about the film a little bit, but... Spoiler free. Continue. Uh, the cool thing with the Mission Impossible franchise, I learned, and I think I texted you, this is like, they're so dated individually. Where like, they're like, uh, man, we're going to have like Mission Impossible 2's villain be uh, the, the Scottish guy. They always made Wolverine. They were going to try and make him a thing. And then it's like, ah, Jeremy Renner, 2000s. Let's go. We got him in the cab. And then it's like, John Reese Myers. What's up? Mission Impossible 3. And then like all these guys flame out for the most part. And it's like, wow. Nice try, Hollywood, I guess. It's definitely not a series that's known for its villains. I would agree with you there. Um, but just kind of focusing real quick on number seven, I think that's awesome that you went through and rewatched them all. I think what's great is the series has gotten better as it's gone on, I would say. Um, a lot of dead tech, like you said, and some of the earlier ones, which are kind of a point of satire now, but I still enjoy it. Like, I think one is a masterpiece and probably the last really great Brian De Palma film. So I don't really have a problem with any of them outside of two. Um, but I did start to feel the seven, you know, I felt like, okay, we're, we're at film seven now, you know, there were some things that, uh, didn't work all the way for me and I don't want to reveal it for anybody because it's still in the movie theaters. And I, I encourage everybody to go out and see that RV Oppenheimer, get, get out to your local cinema, support those films. But, um, yeah, it, was, it definitely felt a little strange at times, but there was also many times where I had to slap myself and be like, this man is 60. Yeah, these things right now. He just he he just jumped off a a cliff. That that was crazy. Yeah, but like the whole theater. I don't know about your theater because mine was silent when it happened. We were just like, 
like usually you hear like some people like talking or whispering because like there was these two 50 year old women that were talking about like oh i should get the regal crown club card and like oh yeah sandra's fucking she's washing the dishes again i don't know what they were talking about it was a lot of like Pinterest conversations and like I could hear them kind of throughout the movie time and time again because I went on a noon showing on a Monday morning so like the, the the crowd isn't raucous it's a lot of people who have nothing better to do than go do it was just like everyone was just like silent when he jumped off that cliff of like holy shit he's doing it not only that but like all of the like physicality of the driving and, and the crazy stuff that he's doing like, he's 61 years old Tom Cruise and he's like I think I think again it, it could have been a one parter obviously this is the thing where they mm-hmm. want two parts and now that seems to kind of not be in jeopardy but i don't think we're going to be getting it on time at least anymore um but to me it felt at the end i've kind of felt the same way with across the spider-verse a little bit and this is the only detraction i have from those two films is like they build these great conflicts and like they're in built to this awesome climax but then there's no like real resolution, and I understand that because you need to wait for the part two. But it, to me, it just it just it feels like a setup film, which is a little frustrating at times. But I still had a for both of those films had an amazing time, and they're going to be in my top ten list when we do our end of the year reviews. What I appreciate though about Mission Impossible Seven is like it ends, and I feel like well the, the movies can't end there. Like obviously we need to have the part two to really wrap this all up, but it's not like oh my god is he gonna live or die? It's like no, they're just going to the next location. So yeah, it's not yeah. like blue balling you in that way. It's just like, all right, just like check back in with us a year, hopefully, maybe a year and a half. We'll figure out what happens in the you know location that we're going to next. Yeah, they felt this movie felt much like a video game in that regard, where it was like a little bit of exposition. We break that up with a stunt, and then there's a yeah. little more exposition, and then there's maybe a bigger stunt. Uh, but I had a great time, and also shout out to one of the longtime listeners, friend of the show, Shay Wiggum. Fuck yeah, batting a thousand. Throwing 99 with movement. You cannot touch that man right now. When he screams at the end, oh, come on, man. I was about ready to jump on my seat for the dog. I mean, you and I both like threw a little party digitally when we found out he was cast <laughs> in the movie. And as it was happening, I don't know if you had this fear, but I had this fear in the first five minutes of like, man, I hope they don't kill Shay or like get rid of him in the first five minutes or whatever, because like that could happen. Well, that was one of my fears. But my other fear was like, I hope this isn't a thing where like it's only five minutes of Shay. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. in, he's integral to the plot. He's in a lot yeah. of this movie. And like just to say this one little spoiler, I don't think this is even really a spoiler at this point. Tom Cruise kind of disappears a little bit for the third act of this film. Jay's in it a lot during that part, and he's just cooking. <laughs> they know who their successor to the franchise is, the Shea Wiggum, you know, like <laughs> step aside, Ethan. We got name I don't even know that character's name, but I saw Shea Wiggum and I was like, fuck yeah. Like, I'm look in. at him go. Yeah. I mean, it, look, he doesn't have a lot to do in the movie. But our guy got to have a vacation of like Rome, the the like European Alps. Like he just went all across America at Abu Dhabi and just like, yeah, he kind of crossed the world to hang out with Tom Cruise and got paid for it. Basically, just be like, oh, Ethan Hunt's a bad egg. Like that's the extent of his character, and he did it. Do you think like, you think Simon Pegg and like Ving Rhames feel the same way at this point, where they're just like. Rolling with the dog. We're with Cruz. Like, or is it one of those things? Like, because to me, like, I've seen some behind behind the scenes stuff. Peg seems to me be much more involved in like a filmmaking aspect, and not like that he's actually like behind the camera making decisions. But he's always like, 
we do this every time. This is crazy. Like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to watch it. Like, he's very much involved in the process, it seems more, where I think, I think Rames is just like, I'm chilling. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it found, I find it interesting that, like, he's worked with big directors like Edgar Wright, who, like, I'm sure, ha- like, is, from what I've read, really involved in the filmmaking process and, like, does a lot of crazy stunts. I wonder if we could maybe get a little spinoff for Simon Pegg, you know? You want a Benji spinoff? That's what you want? Give me a Benji spinoff, dude. Give me a Benji spinoff. <laughs> What's hey, a, he doesn't do listen anything. I got it. I got you. I got you. Listen to me. It's a, it's a Benji Shea spinoff, dude. Give me a Benji All right. Shea. <laughs> you turn me around. You turn me around. I'm all in if it's Benji and Shea. Like, like uh, this is one of the other good things about the franchise is there's no spinoffs. They haven't yet been like, we're going to get the Ilsa Faust spinoff TV show on Peacock TV. Mm-hmm. Which like easily could have done, but they're just like, no, we're four movies. This is what we do. This is what we make them for, for the theaters. You get a nice little Tom Cruise, Christopher McQuarrie like thing before the movie starts. Did you get that? I did. I did. It's it's nice. I wish more directors would do it. Honestly, uh, it was a little bit like a, I'm, I felt, it felt like I was listening to two cardboard cutouts. If I'm being frank, you know, like I'm glad. I think it's great too that they're supporting their films and like. You know, encouraging people to go to the movies, but to me, it just I was like, "Can we start the movie?" I just had like thirty minutes of previews. My crowd was also empty too. I went to a eleven forty showing on like a Tuesday, and it was me and probably five other people, so it didn't really get too bumping in there. But by the point when that rolled on, I was like, "All right, let's let's start the movie." <laughs> it is sad that like Cruz opens and we'd be like, "Hey, so glad you guys came out to see it with a packed crowd. This is what movies are all about." And then you and I went early in a week in the morning to be like, got my coffee ready for the movies. Let's go. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I need to need to make sure I'm nice and spry. It's a long movie. <laughs> uh, I want to make sure that I'm nice and stretched out before. But no, uh, I also think it's kind of funny you mentioned that box office. It made $80 million. I mean, and that's not anywhere near what Top Gun Maverick made and stuff like that. So. It is kind of interesting. I still, I'm still very wary of where we're at, and I don't really think things are getting better, as I think we should probably discuss. <laughs> well, I think this is a good pivot point to talk about like what's to come down the pike, especially now that it's Barbenheimer week, as we're calling it. I, when did we all agree on that? I just call it Barbie Oppenheimer week. I don't know, like the combining into one thing thing, but I've been seeing a lot of like T-shirts too with posters combining. It's kind of I, I think lame. it's great. No, see, I love it. I love it. Ugh. If it gets. 15, 20 more people to go see both those movies, and I'm all for it. I mean, you're right, but I just know that's not licensed by the actual studio, so it's just someone like, I don't know, in like Utah making these shirts, just printing money off of people. Just like, And this, yeah, there's a lot of grifters on Twitter just like posting in the comments of like things to be like, oh, buy a Barbenheimer shirt, buy it. And it's like, I'm just trying to read the news. Come on, I want to hear about this thing. Um, but anyways, I was going to say like, the numbers on both those movies are tracking really, really strong. It's it's turned into an event, and I don't remember the yes. last time where we weren't having two movies compete against each other. And I think that might be the properties too, right? Like Oppenheimer is a huge biopic, you know, historical, basically documentary from the way it's being presented at this point, from what I'm reading. And then we have Barbie, which is very fun, where it's like, hey, anybody's welcome, come play, come have fun, you know. So I think it's one of those times where it's like a soft competition. There's not really huge stakes for a, a Barbie film, right? Like in the sense no. we have to make bank, make five more Barbie movies, you know? And I think all of the pressure is probably on Oppenheimer, but it's going to be okay because it is already a spectacle in itself, the way it's being presented in IMAX, who's directing it, who's starring in it. 
though to me it's probably the least contentious i think two hollywood summer blockbusters have been in a long time they're almost in like hand in hand in unison like trying to and that's probably the best place to be right now because of how the doing and people going back to the movies has been since covid well it's interesting because it's two premier directors and gerwig and nolan both doing movies that you wouldn't think the mass public would want to go see like this isn't like tenet 2 this isn't um like a property like little women where like we're bringing it back to the big screen and doing this whole thing with like a really premier cast <laughs> it's barbie and a guy that most people don't even learn about in u.s history class it's just like manhattan project they made a nuke like that's I, you don't know about oppenheimer unless you like do individual research on it from school um and yet all of america is like fuck yes like i saw things like barbie has the most pre-sale tickets since avatar the way of water that's insane it's a barbie movie where barbie goes into the real world with ken and yet even i am like and i i've a you know a heart made of stone even i'm like can't wait let's go yeah i'm i don't know if i'll be there opening night for both i want to try to be but i'm going to be there that weekend you know i'm going to see at least yeah. one if not both right back to back i'll probably be seeing oppenheimer by myself i wish i wish we could just you know fly in and you know and I could, we could just watch oppenheimer together just so we can both look at each other and be like i am become death <laughs> but like and that's the thing like what would we even do like we when we saw a movie together the last time you went and sat somewhere else away from me <laughs> You're, dude, You're I like, have this thing. I, dude, I have a weird thing with noises. Like, I go, I went to the movies recently with like uh, a coworker of mine. Shout out Vaughn, one of the one of the main road dogs, longtime listener, friend of the show. Yeah, he is so loud in a movie theater. Even but like before the movie starts, like not during the movie, but like loud in the theater before the movie starts, and I it makes me uncomfortable. It gives me anxiety. I'm like, dude, I'm moving away from you. Stay away. What's he doing? It's like talking like we're talking right now in a movie theater. Oh. Yeah. And I'm like, come on, you jabroni. You know? Like, I'm, tr- I'm trying to watch the trailers. <laughs> I'm trying to watch the Haunting in Venice trailer, even though I'll never see the movie. Uh, I kind of want to see that movie. Oh, my God. Okay, let's talk about trailers. Let's do trailers. Let's do some trailer talk. Um, okay, so I think the big one that we should talk about, the, the two main ones, obviously, um, Napoleon, the Ridley Scott mm-hmm. biopic. Dropping uh, later this year. Radiohead's National Anthem. Just sitting out there for anybody to take for so long. One of my favorite tracks by them. Love that Love that uh, trend we keep of taking a pop song and turning it into a symphonic big epic. Trailer. Yeah, it's kind of old. Um, but I'm, I also was really excited to see Walking Phoenix finally in actual scenes from that. I think we both can agree that we're happy he stayed away from the accent. Yeah, because I was going to say we could have the Napoleon Bonaparte Award of like maybe every year we rename the Colonel Tom Parker Award to like the newest, strangest accent choice. But I don't think we have to worry about it with Joaquin. I think he could have done it, though. But I, I also think that it's a great decision that he didn't. Um, I'm really excited for that just because I, when I took it, I needed to pull through because it's been a terrible year. However, however, I will say, yeah. I will say, can I give you my sleeper dog just grinding it out? My Zach Randolph pick of the year. Elemental. Elementals hanging in the box office. Not a lot of movies out for kids to see right now. Every weekend, it's just staying strong. It's got like thirteen percent decrease, eleven percent decrease, nine percent. De- you know, it's 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 banging in the post, low post, finishing. You know, you know. <laughs> when I came up with the concept of the movie draft, I didn't think it'd end up with you be like Elemental. Okay, the finances look great. Okay, if you look at the breakdown, it's making more money than the Flash. That's a great success for Pixar. It's a great success for me. It I didn't is, think yeah. that's where we would end up. 
Hey, man. But like you haven't even seen it, so you can't even say you're excited because you like the movie. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm for it. I'm, I'm excited for it, man. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I was gonna say about Napoleon. I'm in the Napoleon mood, actually. You know, I I, I got an audiobook about him this week. I've been listening to it. It's like 26 hours long. I'm in. Let's yeah, go. Let's ride. He's a fascinating read. I think I might have to hop on that. You might have to send it my way. Let me know what that book. Is I mean, he's he's certainly an interesting guy because like. His wife sleeps around on him. He's just kind of like really sad. He's a big simp. I learned about Napoleon. Like he he's like an internet troll. He's like, oh, I love her so much, and then she cheats on him. And he's like, oh, I hate all women. Ah. Yeah, even like how he like I only know a little bit, and I don't think I want to turn this into the Napoleon podcast. But like, yeah, the Napoleon like cats. <laughs> even his like early life and like how he t- didn't really know who his dad was and all that stuff and his, the situation with his mother. So yeah, he's a very fascinating character. Not a great guy. Kind of a knucklehead. A little bit of a goofball. But uh, I am excited to go see that one. And we have to always, like we've said multiple times, we talked about this guy on this podcast when we did Prometheus. Guy is in his mid-80s. And, like, that movie looks insane from a visual and, like, grandiose standpoint. It looks amazing, right? I mean, I don't know how good it'll be. You know, I don't think it'll be Alexander, you know, flop completely or something like that. And I think Joaquin is competent and will hold it down in that role but like how long are we gonna it's the same thing that we've talked about with Oppenheimer that scares me a little bit is like how long can we keep an audience captivated with one a story they kind of already know at least a little bit about or two might not really be entirely interested in going into the movies to begin with I'm interested to see how Napoleon fares. Oppenheimer has so much going for it in a sense despite its subject matter of number one it's cast like everyone loves that cast on the internet Florence Pugh, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Killian Murphy's now like everyone's favorite. Like he's actually really hot, and it's like, yeah, we know. It's shocker, an actor's hot, cool. Um, and then it has like the whole Barbie stuff with it, and then Nolan too, where like the young crowd really responds to Nolan because kids my age are like that guy directed The Dark Knight. It's the best movie ever. Um, and then the whole stuff about like, oh no, no CGI. They they blew up a bunch of shit. So everyone's like interested in that way, but no one in my age group, I think is like, can't wait to see what Ridley Scott does with Napoleon. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, there's not the same, like, buzz or interest in it, because, like, I love Vanessa Kirby. I think she's a terrific actress, and I think she would really kill the role of Josephine. But, like, I don't think that the internet fervor is going to quite surround it the way it is or the way that, like, the Oppenheimer press tour has been. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I don't know if it'll get the same buzz. And I think it's weird, because... I thought going into it that it would be one of those movies where it's like, oh, this is going to be in competition for Academy Awards. And I think it still probably will be, but like, I don't know. I think the window of November might be a little early to be dropping. And like, it's, we can get into that now or later, but we've kind of talked about it previously. It's like, what is going on with like the releases? You know, like, is this, it's also one of those things I wonder if they're trying to get things out of the gate before the strike, well, the strike has started now, but by the time this podcast is released, but I wonder also if it's one of those things where they wanted to get this out before the strike happens. Like, for real, for real. I'm sure there's a ton of... I don't know. I wonder how finished it is. I assume it has to be mostly finished, because, I I mean, Scott's already directing Gladiator 2, so it's not like he can go back for reshoots. No, that's what I... I know it's done in the sense of nothing else to do, but I wonder when it comes out, like, how much of a finished project we'll be watching. It might have been a little rushed, and, and I don't know. But, yeah, I'm excited to see it. I don't think there will be the same buzz that Oppenheimer has. I don't think – which is strange because, like you said, Oppenheimer is probably a figure, in, at least in American history, that's 
not forgotten. Mostly forgotten. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. say so. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then you have somebody who is and not forget about Napoleon. Um, yeah, <laughs> which might not get the same buzz or like same box office, but we'll see. What might get a lot of buzz? Oscar stuff, financial stuff, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, this, this is my baby of the year. I kind of agree with you. I loved the first trailer more, a little more avant-garde, a little more like I felt like Marty cut that trailer, um, which got me kind of hyped up. But the second trailer finally got to hear Jesse Plemons speak. I mean, come on. That, that was enough for me right then and there. They just could have shown you that. The whole trailer, too, could have been that 50 seconds of like, uh, here to see about the murders. You would have been like, and let's go pre-sale tickets. Let's go drop, 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 drop. I was doing them. <laughs> I love Jesse. He's my boy. So I'm really excited I didn't for like the second trailer either, but when I saw it in the movie theaters before Mission Impossible, I was kind of like, fuck, this looks awesome. <laughs> like I take back like my, my reservations. Yeah. In, in the sense of like, uh, to explain for the audience, I think the first trailer is much more like um, kind of to lure you in. It's a, it's like it's it's a teaser, so it's much more sparse. The, to me, it was like a very like felt like more like a European vibe to it, mm-hmm. like a almost like an art house film. And then the second trailer like has kind of like a, a rock riff on it. There's a lot more dialogue. It's a little more expositionary. But I thought still it was, did a great job. Like you said, like I kind of was like ah. Uh, on the trailer, but as far as the movie, I was like, I am all the way in. I'm so glad that this is finally coming out. Make this six hours. And the more research I do on the actual subject matter, too, the more, like, amazed and, like, into it I get of, like, I, I think this is going to be one of the, I don't know, it's going to be such an interesting year, because, like, all the reviews for Barbie and Oppenheimer are living up to the hype and are like, Oppenheimer's going to be the, one of the most important movies you'll see this century. It's going to be talked about for hundreds of years. And I feel like you say the same like Killers of the Flower Moon so far. Like, it is such a sprawling story of, like, America. And not just, like, the very generic, like, oh, the American dream. But the true sense of what America is at its ugly heart. That I think a lot of audiences are going to have a hard time with that. Because it is very much so, (laughs) like, look at all the bodies buried beneath our gold. Mm -hmm. Um, That not only people are going to want to be like, oh, awesome. But it's also Martin Scorsese and it's going to be a great fucking movie. Yeah, and also a movie to me that is going to be a okay because it's an Apple film, so it's going to be on. Yeah. What kind of sucks is it's even Martin Scorsese's films are going to a streaming service. It's kind of frustrating to me. Like Irishman went to Netflix, I think was only in theaters for like a couple of weeks, if a week maybe. So I hope this gets. A, I think this one is getting like a wide theatrical release and like a regular run, which I'm very excited about. I believe I think it's exclusively in theaters first for I don't know how long, but I would hope it's at least a month, and then maybe you go to VOD. But like, there's been a lot of weird VOD decisions lately too. Like the Flash dropped really early, which I kind of can't blame them because no one was going to go see it anymore. Mm-hmm. Asteroid City though dropping like uh, four weeks after it came out was super odd because that made a lot of money for Asteroid City. Like, like when I got went to go see it in theaters, it was packed. And yet it's already on VOD, which desensitizes the need or, you know, deprioritizes the need for everyone to go see it. So it's just really weird. And I hope Marty doesn't get shafted by Apple and in spite of all this and, like, get stuck with, like, hey, you know, two weeks in, we're on Apple now. Yeah, I totally agree. I want this in theaters. Like, I want to – this is, like, the last time I saw a Martin, Martin Scorsese movie in theaters might have been Wolf of Wall Street. Silence? Yeah, I didn't see Silence in theaters. No, I didn't. I, I I have seen it, but I didn't go to theaters and see it. But um, I saw Wolf of Wall Street in theaters, and I went to that movie two times. 
that's like three hours, you know, like he's one of those people who I, when he puts a film out, I can't take my eyes off of it for a while. So I'm really excited. And I want to be able to go see that movie in theaters like once, maybe twice, you know? Yeah. I, I, I feel like we're getting back into like the sad boy hours of like, yeah. oh man, the movie industry is really dark. So let's talk Should about Wonka. Let's talk about, yeah. a, let's talk about a fun little movie called Wonka where Timothy Chalamet might get renamed the Colonel Tom Parker award. Cause he's making some choices here. Listen, I took this movie for the audience who didn't watch the uh, yeah. the, the movie draft episode. Um, I took this film in my miscellaneous category. This is this is this is Craven 2.0 for me. I got to stick with my Fuck guns. You. I got Elemental. I'm riding with my boys. I got Elemental in the in the passenger seat. I got Wonka and Craven in the back. We got a cooler full of snacks and cold drinks, and we're headed to the this cinema, is... baby. This is unbelievable. I can't believe you're doing this. Like, oh my gosh. I look, I like the Wonka. I like the director of Wonka. Okay. He's directed the Paddington movies. They're very cute, very nice movies. I watched the trailer. I watched the trailer and I was like, who is this for? What is this? Why is Timothy Chalamet doing this role? Like, he, he's just like very. I don't look at Timothy Chalamet and be like, man, he's really weird and eccentric and a real total goofball. Cause he always comes off with like the like, really like soft sensitive quiet like hot guy you know and it's just like it's such a weird fit i don't know it's weird because back before like because i would say now timothy chamelay is probably the best example of a modern movie star would you agree or modern yeah. at least what we have as a superstar and what we would perceive as a superstar now is he knew exactly what they were about Denzel washington brad pitt leo Tom Cruise. I still, we're probably almost a decade deep with his filmography. I still don't really have a, a grasp on him. There was a period of time where I didn't really care for his films. Then I saw some other stuff that he did that completely turned me around. So I just, he's very, very elusive in that sense. I'm like, I still don't know what this guy is about. Like, I don't know what he's great at. Don't know what he's bad at. Like, he's still so vague to me. So I'm kind of excited in the sense to see him do something zany and ridiculous. And I'm also just, you're, I'm just, also trying, to, you're just trying to pop that up more. I don't, I don't believe no. I'm going to believe a single word you just said. I meant it all. I meant it all. So I'm, I'm trying it. to, I'm trying to remain optimistic for Wonka. I'm going to be there. Why? Cause it's just like, there's like a chocolate mafia in the movie and it I just know. seems ridiculous. Awesome, <laughs> seen you. Oh my God. Dude, the chocolate mafia. I'm going to get a t-shirt of that. I love how they shrunk uh, the little guys. I forget their names. Richard, <laughs> they've always been shrunken. What are you talking about? But but they never were like under like a small enough to be like under a glass jar. I liked that. That was kind of cool looking. <laughs> I also I, let's make a pact. comment ever. <laughs> let's make a pact. <laughs> okay, you have. We have to both go see. Wonka and Craven. Like, Elemental, I'll, let, I'll give the pass, too. I'll give a pass on Elemental. Oh, thanks. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> we have thanks. to both go see. We both have to go to the movie theater and see Craven. <laughs> we have to go see Wonka. We have to go see your picks. Like, you're both like, okay, the two picks that have been most maligned by me, we have to go see them and support them in theaters. That way I get a little bit more pop. I haven't once been like guys you should have gone to knock on the cabin like please go see some of my movies i was just like hey the audience is gonna see what they want to see i don't know why you're trying to drag you saw your picks nobody wants to see mine all right here we go go see bottoms go see dune part two go see mission impossible because this is what i got mission impossible (laughs) so like i I don't need i don't need your support i you know i just like jesus christ you're like oh my god well if you want to see walker craven go see him well, I don't think a lot of people are. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm trying. Who's oh. like, oh man, I've been waiting years for the Wonka prequel. I need to figure out how he makes his chocolate. Like, oh god, fascinating story. How do you come up with that fortune? You know, how do you make sure all those chocolate factories in the pipes stay sanitized? You know, that's kind of gross. A lot of people frolicking <laughs> around in chocolate ponds. You know, I'd love to see the ins and outs. What's that look like for on a tax return? <laughs> I hope we get like a 20 minute like permit sequence for Wonka, <laughs> like trying to build this thing where he's like, oh, the city didn't approve this. So we don't, we can't have the chocolate fountain quite yet. The zoning, the zoning codes will not allow us to put another fountain over here. <laughs> Is that your Gene Wilder? <sighs> All right. I think that's probably it for trailer talk, unless you got something to add. No, I think, I think that's enough funny ha-has, and we should now pivot to the another sad thing about Hollywood. So yes. let's talk about the SAG after strike. Yeah, um, this is a subject that we've kind of not avoided talking about, but we've felt we didn't really have a a huge right to speak on. Still, don't think we necessarily do, but we're doing a movie podcast and we're talking about movies and the current state of them, so it's only important that we talk about the people who are affected by it. Um, I think it was official on the 13th. SAG and AFTRA went on strike joining the Writers Guild. Um, obviously, you know, when most unions go on strike, it's for compensation. Um, but it also had to do with a lot of the revenue that streaming services have had um, with shows like The Office and stuff like that that now go not on syndication through cable companies but go on to a streaming service. Um, and the revenue just does not, you know, actors aren't, aren't paid for that work. They don't, get, they don't right. see those, you know, on their, on their end. Um, and there's also a lot of stuff about artificial intelligence, whether it be in a writer's room or being used in an acting sense which has been very controversial and something that has been a hard line no for the Writers Guild and um, SAG-AFTRA. And the studio seemed to me, I don't know, I don't want to, again, kind of speak out of turn, to seem extremely tone-deaf, um, ignorant to the fact that what it costs to survive in this world. And uh, there was a breakdown the other day that I saw where in order to live in you know, the greater Los Angeles area where a lot of writers do, plus be able to pay your bills... If you're not working full time as, as as a gigger, um, is 132 hours a week. That mm-hmm. is impossible. Um, and if the top CEOs took two percent of their combined wealth, they would be able to meet all of the financial obligations that um, both unions have presented to them. So as always, it kind of boils down to money, which is frustrating. And I totally get it on on the SAG and the WGA side. I think it's ridiculous to be paying people through a bird feeder for their hard work and labor. And it's just, it speaks to me that when CEOs like Bob Iger make comments like they did, how unaware they are of blue collar worker. You know, people think that film is this marvelous world where everything is great for everybody. And, you know, why should we, it's almost like we look at athletes. Why should we worry about them? Why should we, you know, care about their financial woes? It doesn't work that way. It really doesn't for, you know, the average blue collar worker or the guy who's gripping or gaffing or, you know, working on independent shoots, whatever it may be. It's not this glamorous lifestyle for everybody involved. So when you hear these people who are, <laughs> aren't able to, you know, repurpose their mega yachts this year because they have to take a couple pennies out of their pocket, it really frustrates me. And they say these really stupid and ignorant things. Um, yeah. Uh, corporations suck. And... I think they're not really doing anything to help themselves, and it hurts the industry more that's already struggling in, in kind of unprecedented waters. And then, you know, I was looking up, trying to see Twisters. What's going on with Twisters? Shut down because of the strike. 
know, so it's upsetting me too. You know, it's, it's getting it's getting me riled up. See my gosh darn twisters. <laughs> so, and, and on a serious note, it just it sucks all around for everybody. I hope everyone is fairly compensated who's striking right now. On the Road Dogs podcast, we stand with you, and uh, hopefully this doesn't go on for an extended period of time. Although I, I think it is the earliest that I heard or read is possibly December first. Um, I wouldn't bank on it. Yeah, I um I thought about opening the show with like a joke that we were on strike and that's why there was no new episode for two weeks. Decided against it, you know, because <laughs> we were just busy. Whereas these people were, like making sure they don't starve to death because they can't write or do their job because studios won't pay them fairly. Um, I found it really interesting. I don't know what you feel about this. Of like, it feels like there's mass back and support of the actual people striking. And I don't know if this is like a generational change because it used to be very much in my day. And I've seen it firsthand where I don't know why, but I told my grandpa about the SAG strike and he had the same kind of thing that a lot of people his age probably feel of like, oh, they're millionaires. Why are they complaining? Just do your job, yada, yada, yada. But most people on the internet, and I, I mean, it's a vocal minority of, of the whole planet, but it feels like a majority of people are generally in support of the strike. Totally. This is the first time in 60 years the two unions have struck together at the same time. So, right. I mean, these, this is not something that happens on the regular. You know what I mean? Um, and TV is, like, done as soon as October. Like, they're done. Like, nothing's going on. So, it's it's cold turkey. Everything is stopping. Um, and I don't anticipate this being a quick, easy fix. This is going to be a knockdown, drag-out, bloody process. And sometimes that's what you have to do to get what you deserve, which sucks. And I think that's totally total bullshit. Um, but if it breeds change and get what they want and they deserve then i'm all for it you know well and i don't how long do deals last between the, the studios and like the the guilds do we know i don't it's I like don't a five-year ten-year i i don't anyway, know I, I would assume it's something like that but i, I just right don't want well, i think the overall point that i think a lot of people need to understand is like they're not just fighting for compensation for them themselves now it's for everything that's going to come down the road because when you think that's about right. what does the tv landscape look like it is only going to be more Hulus and Maxes and apps and less and less channels where the traditional sense of like, we get our residuals from them playing this show a lot, like a show like Friends. I'm sure everyone in that cast has deals where they get a certain amount of money for every rerun played or however many views the Friends rerun gets on TBS. There's not that same kind of like leniency or like, you know, clearness about it because Netflix doesn't want to tell you how much something gets watches or whatever like that. And they don't measure traditionally the way that a Nielsen box does. So there's so much confusion about what actually sees what, and then you don't really find out unless it's success. Like Max will come out and be like the last of us, the highly most highly viewed show of yeah, such and such and such, because it makes them look good. Yeah. But if you're yeah, like, how? Hey, what was it? <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, well, what about the numbers of the Robert Downey Jr. Car show? And they're like, oh, I can't give that to you. We won't give that to you. So there's no way to know that people who then were on the production behind the scenes of the Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. car show, what they're going to make or how much they'll get back. And there's been some real nightmare stories about like actors and even, you know, sitcoms now of like my reserves is like a penny to a dollar and I'm a main cast member on a show. Yeah, that's absurd. And I, I think and it's, it's gross. we can all agree the system is absolutely broken and something needs to change, you know, and, and, if you can't see that, then I think you're blind to the fact that things need to change. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of my thing on it. Again, we're not 
experts. We're not trying to speak from a point of authority. It's just from what we've gathered and looked into, and I've personally have heard from some other people as well who are in the industry. So kind of uh, murky times, but we got some cool trailers. And Josh and I saw Wonka. Mission Impossible 7. <laughs> Wonka, Craven, Elemental, go see him. Oh, man. I will tell you one movie that you should go and see. That is The Silent Partner, 1978. Aiden film that we will be discussing on this podcast. It's a good segue. I, I thought about a different one. Talking about fighting the system. <laughs> yeah, sticking it to the man. I thought, you'd have, I thought you'd have another thing coming after that, and then there's just that awkward pause. But yeah. yeah. We're talking yeah, about The Silent I, Partner this week. Yeah, we're talking about The Silent Partner, 1978. I don't know, Josh. Is this our first Canadian film on the podcast? I think it is. I think so. And what we mean by that is not just like there's Canadian people in it, but it's actually filmed and shot and like everything Chinese. goes through Canada. Yes. Yeah. Canada. Yeah, 1978, The Silent Partner, directed by Daryl Duke. Um, stars Elliot Gould, Christopher Plummer, and Susanna York. Uh, I would call this a thriller film, pretty taut thriller. Would you agree? Yeah, it, it's... I don't know what... We'll talk about this later because I don't want to spoil the juices because they're still flowing. Um, but it's certainly a movie about... Well, I know. Uh, <laughs> I would say thriller drama, probably the best way to put it, because it's not incredibly scary. Like, a lot of the big scares, I feel like, are kind of simmering and kind of just happen half the time. I don't know. This movie scared the shit out of me with one of its scenes. I can't uh, wait to talk about it. Maybe. Um, okay. Sorry. So, yeah, we'll be talking about The Silent Partner, 1978 thriller film. Um, Josh, do you think you can recap this plot from the film in 60 seconds? I feel kind of confident. It's a pretty simple movie, I feel. Okay. All right. Well, you let me know Honestly. when you're ready. I'm ready. I'm always right. ready. We're officially on the clock. All right, we meet, we meet Miles Gould. He's a bank tower somewhere. He finds that he's going to get robbed by a guy in a Santa suit, but the Santa guy forgets his note or whatever, so he knows the bank robber's going to come another day. Bank robber comes, but Miles has already outsmarted him, and he steals all the money and gives the Santa guy the money he's collected from that day, which is a very much paltry sum. Problem is, the Santa dude finds out what Miles did, and because Miles is on TV all the time, he's like, I'm going to get that guy. While stuff ensues, Miles has a little kind of on and off again romance, whatever. And then guess what? Santa dude, played by Christopher Plummer, who's kind of like a proto-Buffalo Bill, gets out of jail slash prison, I don't know where, comes after Miles, hurts someone he loves, and then he's like, I want all the money. And Miles is going kind to of like, I don't want to give him the money. I kind of, I'm a thief, you know, I'm a criminal now. Uh, long story short, some, some things pursue. Christopher Plummer gets shot and killed dressed like a woman, very proto-Buffalo Bill. And then Miles kind of quote-unquote wins by getting away with a very... Uh, Immoral person. I don't know. Congratulations. It's like, it I, it's, the I'm, end of the timer. Okay. Should we talk about Julie now or should we wait? Let's wait. Okay. Let's wait. We'll get to that later. Okay. Uh, yeah, Josh, I think you got it pretty much. Again, kind of like a, I think an underrated holiday movie. I think it's a Christmas movie, which we can debate later. Uh, but it's, it's a great movie. It was kind of fun. I think I picked this very from a simplistic standpoint. Um, someone brought it up on set to me during a down period when we we're on a night shoot. Shout out to Nate, one of the best ADs doing it. And uh, it kind of stuck with me when he described the plot of like a, a cat and mouse between a crooked bank teller and a Santa Claus. I was like, interesting concept. Uh, it was one of those rare times where somebody probably says to you, you should watch that movie. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely add it to the list. And like you actually watch it and you remember yeah. it. You're like, that was a pretty damn good movie. So like the reasons why I picked this are very surface level. 
Was this the first time you'd seen this? It was the first time. Yeah, I'd never seen it before. Interesting. I think this is the first movie he's also done where neither of us have like a connection to this movie or like have any history to it because I hadn't seen this either. Uh, something wild, I would say. Well, you but you've seen something wild beforehand, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I apologize to Jonathan Demi. I almost stole your crown. I almost stole your thunder, sir. <laughs> uh, yeah. So no, it was just kind of a basic pick, but I really enjoyed it. I don't know. To me, one thing that I want to talk about now is I never really feel a huge sense of location with modern films. I feel like I'm very much being kind of thrown around and kind of like what we talked about with Mission Impossible, but those films are structured that way. Be exquisite and you're going to these lavish locations. But I just never really feel a place of like sense and time. I mean, I love how like set of Marlowe's apartment feels, or uh, Marlowe, that's a different character. Miles. Miles. Um, Miles' apartment feels like a real place with the fish tanks and i love the telephone booth so i'm like okay so the telephone booth's right outside the apartment so you can go down the back stairs through the left and through the fire escape i love the mall the eaton center mall that they use which was newly opened at the time and i think that like setting really feels like i don't know you ever feel that sense in the mall where it's like so vast where you're like like somebody like up there like looking at me you know like you just kind of feel like somebody might be looking at you or always just kind of like a, a very like um a creepy liminal space. Yeah, I guess the way, the way I would put it. So I really well, enjoyed it from that standpoint. It's been like 10 years since anyone's been in a mall, so I can't really say for sure if I'd feel that now. But I understand your point. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of filmed like a 70s porno. And I almost mean that like a compliment where like everything feels a little grungy and a little dirty and like a little hazy. But there's like an interesting vibe that like really captures your attention um, and like you really do feel connected to like these are just real people doing real things. Yeah, totally. Um, not a lot of production stuff this week, but we've got some meaty film history stuff, which is stuff that I always enjoy talking about on the show. Uh, this film is loosely based on a 1969 novel called Think of a Number. It was written by a Danish writer named Anders Boldenson. He was a law student and economics student. Um, but it was purchased by Curtis Henson, who wants to option the book. He writes a screenplay on spec, hoping to direct it, but the producers, however, wouldn't let him. Thinking he was a little too green. They went with a Canadian director, Daryl Duke, who the studio trusted as an established director coming off of his film Payday, which I have not seen. Have you seen Payday? I, if I haven't seen The Silent Partner, buddy, I, I have not seen Payday. Like, I'll be honest, I still have some American misses, let alone Canadian misses in my boy, filmography. Boy, do you ever. Um, <laughs> but things still work out for Curtis Hansen on his career. Just a quick little note. Uh, he went on to write and direct movies like The Bedroom Window, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, The River Wild, L.A. Confidential, Heater, wow. Wonder Boys, and 8 Mile. So some bangers in there for Mr. Henson. You know, got, got a little robbed in the beginning there with the... Well, I want to direct thing, which we've talked about, happens all the time on this podcast. A lot of writers want to be directors, but sometimes they're just writers, you know? Um, not in this case. This man was like, nah, I'm making films, dog. So good for him. Um, kind of pretty simple stuff for production. There's really not a lot, but I do want to talk about this. This film was financed through the Canadian Capital Cost Allowance. So just some brief context before we explain what that is. In the early 60s and 1970s, Canada wasn't seen as a place for, you know, a thriving, viable sense of box office entertainment. Um, it was a lot of documentaries and animated stuff from NPB mostly. So they kind of wanted to plant their stake in the game. So they start churning out these genre films 
through the capital cost allowance period. This is an initiative by the Canadian federal government to increase film production by granting 100% tax deductions for money invested in Canadian mm. films. So essentially, all of these early films were tax shelters for a lot of guys who wanted to be producers. The period strictly began in 1974, but the real peak years were 1978 through 1980. Um, although the CCA period lasted in one modified form or another until 1998 or 1988, uh, in many cases, the creative positions of actor, director were taken up by Americans, although two-thirds of the creative personnel had to be Canadian to qualify for the credit. They would get like a guy like Elliot Gold or, you know, they would go in and try and hire somebody, you know, from the States to direct a, a Canadian feature with a Canadian crew. It was kind of a workaround. This whole entire period, too, is kind of shady. A lot of good films came out of it. Some entertaining films came out of it. Some bad stuff. But it's definitely a period of known people... Um, who wanted to get involved for film, maybe for not the right reasons. Um, this, right. But it did result in a huge increase for film production and made Canada a viable source of entertainment. Um, people with no experience, like I said, or interest became kind of involved to either shelter their investments or they wanted the title of producer to be able to say, you know, I was on this film. So it's just kind of interesting to me because that is literally the American system too, to this day. Yeah. So nothing really changes. It just repeats itself. This also kind of created this Canucksplosion period or Canucksploitation era. Um, this was 1974 to 1982. It launches the likes of Cronenberg. We've talked about many times on the show. Norman Jewison, the director of uh, Marathon Man and Ivan Reitman. Uh, this silent partner was the first film to be produced by Carlico Pictures, who would go on to enjoy great success in the 80s and 90s with the likes of the Rambo and Terminator series, as well as Basic Instincts. So, yeah, there was some bad film made, and there was some film made for the wrong reasons, but there were also very good or at least very entertaining ones, and I think this is probably one of the crown jewels of the, of the sort. Canada as a film superpower is kind of like a hidden thing now, because a lot of people don't know this, but a bunch of movies and TV shows shoot in Vancouver. It is one of the premier locations for a lot of shoots because it can double for so many different cities. It can be a metropolitan city like New York, and then it could also be like a small town like <laughs> the show Riverdale shoots in Vancouver because it can come off as a quaint town just as you can come as a metropolis. You have, uh, I think a lot of stuff is like Atlanta can double as that. So Canada is like an interesting spot where it does have a lot of people using it almost. You know what I mean? Like all these major studios go there. But it's never to tell Canadian stories. It's always like, hey, welcome to Canada. Go tell your own thing, and I guess we'll be here. Yeah, and they seem, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's, like, ill will towards that. It seems to be, no. from, from everything that I've read and never been there, but the Toronto International Film Festival is, like, the least competitive of all those, like, you know, the Venice Film Festival, the Cannes Film Festival. It's very much, it's a film-hungry community. They're like, we just want to be here to see good films, you know? So it's not, it's, it's very Canadian in that regard, where it's much like a, a sense of <laughs> yeah. communal approach to the way they make films. So I think it's more like, hey, you want to use this as a tax shelter? Your your dollar translates a lot better to for ours. We'll take it. Come on in and, and set up a studio, Netflix. Hey, come come build a studio so we can use that too. You know, Amazon or whoever it is. Like you said, there's a lot of sh the Batman shot for God's sakes. A lot of stuff in I think either Toronto or Vancouver. So it's one, one of those. Two. Yeah, so it's one of those cities still to this day, that, or one of these locations still to this day, that we're using to our advantage all the time. Do you have much experience with, like, Canadian movie slash TV now, or are you, are you not dabbling? 
I've been dabbling a lot recently. You want me to give you a wow. little something? Yeah. Hey, let's. I got a couple Canadian shows I've watched too. Let's do it. Let's do it. So not. No, I'm not on the television grind, but I have recently been tearing through Cronenberg's filmography. Crash, Naked Lunch, rewatched The Fly, rewatched um, Eastern Promises. What else did I watch? Videodrome. I watched Scanners. So I've been watching a lot of that, and I do have. I do have something about that, and it does relate to this movie. All, all what I love about these early Canadian films is there always is a sense, and not in a literally me way. There is always a sense of regularity to a character who yes. gets thrust into either preposterous, or preposterous or supernatural circumstances. I really enjoy that, like Scanners. You know, I don't the movie's old, so I, I guess I can spoil it. But like the main character, who's the good guy, dies at the end of Scanners. You know, it's it's very much like a a normal person who is homeless who then like comes to these amazing circumstances who's like brought into this group of amazing psycho like mind control geniuses it's so i enjoyed that same with um oh i also watched dead ringers which is something we're going to be talking about on this podcast soon which i don't want to spoil okay well tease canada like I, i've watched a lot more current canadian like tvs and, and movies uh <laughs> the show letter candy i'm sure a lot of people know of now that's a very big canadian show that really blossomed once it got to hulu Started very small and now is is a pretty big thing. Uh, there was a show an actor on that was in a, beforehand called Nineteen Two is Canadian Cop Show that I watched. Pretty good, pretty good. It's weird with Canada because a lot of people uh, in a lot of the shows are always in French. Some of them mm. because when you get to the Montreal Quebec kind of area, yeah. it's very <laughs> they're speaking French, so there's kind of an inaccessibility to a lot of that. But like Canadian TV is big. There's like CTV. They've got a bunch of different channels. So like. I'm really glad that you took an opportunity to get away from like a very American approach and got to a much more like, Hey, you know, like we're not the only hub of entertainment. Oh, thanks. Yeah. No, I thought it would be a good little detour too. And like, there's some people in here that I find extremely interesting as we'll get into here later. I mean, this is one of John Candy's early screen appearances. So Mm -hmm. there's some people in here that you'll recognize if you wind up watching this. Um, The production was shot on location in Toronto and features several prominent locations, such as the then-newly-opened Eaton Center, uh, Harry Reich's Hangout, the Silver Dollar Room is a well-known live music venue in downtown Toronto. Toronto. Interior sets were built at Cinespace Film Studios in Kleinberg. I wanted to ask, how many Canadian Mm -hmm. impressions are we doing? Over and under, last week we had Jaws, how many impressions? Let's try and stay away from the Canadian ones. I don't want to offend our Canadian audience. I could do a Canadian impression for the whole episode if I really wanted to. I actually feel it's one of my better impressions. Okay. So do you want me to, I assume you don't want me to do it because we don't want no, to offend the people. Yeah. Okay, okay. I think we're good. Yeah. Sorry about that. All right, I won't do it. I won't do it. <laughs> um, after the film was completed, executives wanted Daryl Duke to add a beheading scene, and he refused, so he was removed from the film. Gould shot oh. it with another director, Chris Hansen. I was not happy about it, says Elliot. Daryl did a wonderful job. Um, this scene rubs me the wrong way for a multitude of reasons. It's implausibility and abruptness and bold violence in a film that up to this point is purely relying on its smarts. It's jarring. It feels out of place. And I think this quote from Gould explains a lot. And to go back to what we've been talking about really at the beginning of the episode with studios and executives, it's just a prime example of meddling and not being part of the creative process. You don't present anything besides financial stability to the project. So... Maybe you should just do that part of the job. Because I hate that part of the, This part of the movie completely threw me for a loop. Should we spoil that part then? That way we can kind of get around it. 
Yeah, I think we should. I want that's why okay. I put it in here because I I didn't want to like okay. not have it in here. Yeah. So I mean, this is the part of the show where we're always like, "Hey, go watch the movie we're talking about, then check in later if you have, if you seen it, great. If you whatever, yeah. If, oh, she get it's crazy. Like this this woman that's like it's a very simple like movie of like uh, it's a, it's it's more about brains than it's about brawn all the time, and yet <laughs> he cuts her head off with a piece of glass from a fish tank. Like it doesn't even make sense like logically. Well, that part too doesn't make sense, but like also it looks like he just like rode her you know what i mean like grinded it it's just yeah ridiculous and like i get the idea of not showing that happening and then him discovering it but again in a movie that like we just said has been like completely plausible and has like relied on its smarts and its cat and mouse in sense of location i hate that part you know like i really just i really push back on it um maybe on rewatch i'll feel i'll feel differently it was when I watched it no. for the first time. I didn't like it. It, it kind of. I don't think you'll it, feel it better about it. This movie down from probably an A minus to a B plus for me. Well, the other tragedy uh, tragedy is probably hard, but um, the the problem with it, I feel, is that it escalates so much of it in a way that you don't need to. If the character dies, and it's just like, all right, well, the main character is obviously affected by that. And that's going to be the kind of emotional cord going through that makes him do the thing he does at the very end. Sure. But to have it be so violent and so grotesque is just odd. Because then you have to have like a really bad, <laughs> they have a really bad prosthetic head in the head in the tank. So then that looks weird. And then you're distracted by that. And it doesn't feel. That part too. Yeah, it looks terrible on top of it. And it's just like, it adds this interesting layer, I feel, for the Christopher Plummer character. Where he goes from like cold, calculating all of a sudden to like vicious and like way over the line. And to the movie's credit, it does some background work on that when there's a scene where he uh, he assaults and he rapes a woman, which is also really, really brutal to watch. And like, I don't know if that was necessary. So you can buy it somewhat in the plausibility, but it just really comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I would also like to talk while we're on Chris Plummer real quick. It's weird to see Chris Plummer young. Is it just me or is that like yeah. is that a famous old guy or is it just I'm too young to remember him as being a younger actor? But to me he is known for being an older famous actor. I don't know. Does that make sense? I Yeah, cuz like when Kevin Spacey got axed they're like, "Oh, we need an old guy Chris Plummer. Let's go all the money in the world." And then he got an Oscar nomination. He's like, "Oh, we all love old guy Chris Plummer." Yeah. Seeing him is like when I went go watch the Indiana Jones movies again, where I'm like, "Oh yeah, this person used to be young once." Yes. And, like, their hair was not always gray. <laughs> yeah, or they had hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the case of Christopher Plummer. Yeah. He's great, though. Um, I, I want to say that, but yes, he's awesome. We're going to talk about that coming here shortly. Um, so, yeah, I think I just wanted to talk about that scene because we're just we're describing this, like, cat and mouse movie where it's, like, really, really kind of a back and forth of who can outwit the other person, and then it kind of evolves into, like, a... That's why I asked about like what you think this is for a genre because to me at that point it's almost like a suspense slash horror thriller. It's weird. Like I don't know. It's almost like two parts. But um, I just wanted to talk about that scene because I thought it was interesting and kind of changes the way that the film works, but also really kind of relates back to the history we talked about of like you know the Canadian you know a CCA capital cost allowance where a lot of people maybe were getting involved in film. That really shouldn't have been kind of meddling in film they were more just there yeah. for either the fun or the adventure or they were there for the capital gain um 
So just kind of interesting film history stuff there. Go read about the Capital Cost Allowance if you're interested. Um, but moving on to casting, the lead role went to Elliot Gould, who called it the best script he'd read since The Touch. Fucking Elliot Gould rocks. Let's talk about it. Like, I I don't think I'd ever seen one of his movies beforehand. And when he comes onto the screen, yeah, I know. Look, yeah, we already mentioned it. I got a lot of holes, whatever. Hey, oh. Hey, oh. But he comes off in this movie really interesting because the character starts off like so like insulated and like anxious, kind of nervous, and like all these kind of very like I don't want to say beta qualities because I don't I don't believe in beta and alpha, but you know what I mean. Like he's very much like an insider, like he's very inside Ooh. of himself. Yeah. And as he kind of comes out of his shell a lot, I went from being like this dude would be an awesome leading man in any decade because he has it all. Like he can he can do. Go ahead. You need to do yourself a favor today. Not tomorrow, not six hours from now, today. The long goodbye, isn't it? You need to watch The Long Goodbye. He is amazing in that. He is hilarious and kind of scary and right self-righteous, but also a prick. Like you have to watch that, man. He is so great in that. Um and that would then I would pair it with this if I were to offer it to somebody, I'd say, watch the long goodbye, watch the silent partner. There are some connective tissue. Um think you'll see the wise ass kind of you know always coming up with a quick remark um throughout both characters but i love elliot gould i love old elliot gould in the oceans movies i think he's funny in those he doesn't have a big role but he's great in those um i I don't really think somebody we talk about on a regular basis but if you know you showed somebody a picture like oh yeah i've seen that guy in a tv show or i've seen him in you know kind of a that guy he's i watched this and i was like he could have played superman so perfectly because he comes off as like he can do a lot of different things where he can be very mild mannered and very generic and like your average guy, and then he can be a character like Miles when Miles really turns it on, where you're like, oh, this dude's like a genius, like he's thinking through everything. But he also carries this interesting moral complexity in his performance of like, I don't know if he feels guilt about what he's doing, but he's also never expressing like this is the righteous thing to do, and I'm doing this because the bank got back and society's wrong to me. And it's very much a very vague movie, but it plays to the movie's strengths, and his performance really lends to that. Yeah, it's almost the things that the movie leaves out are, are you're kind of almost allowed to paint that canvas with your with your own kind of ideologies of like is he what he's doing morally wrong or would I do the same thing? Which is really smart because we like you said we don't know a lot about him. Sometimes when you exclude things like that from a character's backstory, it only strengthens the film. And I think this is a prime example of that. But just back to Gould real quick, like we're talking about somebody I know who probably didn't maybe get the pop that we think he deserved, but he also worked with Robert Altman multiple times, Igmar Bergman, Alan Arkin. Richard Attenborough, Steven Soderbergh, Warren Beatty. He's 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 worked with a lot of really talent talented people. Um and I think the other thing too is he's also done the thing where as he got older he transitioned to TV. Like Ray Donovan. I remember him being on that forever. He was on Friends, which you brought up earlier. He was on Grace and Frankie for a little bit, I think, which was on Netflix. I remember my girlfriend watching that. So, like, he's remained or remained in the game. He's stuck around. He's been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor and um, nominated for a British Best Act Best Actor Award. So, this is a guy who is immensely respected amongst the community, but I don't think is somebody that we really would talk about if we weren't bringing up the Silent Partner. Yeah, he feels like a person that you know, not to be morbid, but he's an older guy. When he passes, there's not going to be a lot of fervor. But there really should be. Like, I almost wonder if he 
had a career that he like he should have been a bigger deal because he can do anything and he's like he's statuesque he looks great he's tall he's handsome he's black like he's everything you'd want in a leading man and yet somehow i've only encountered him now because we're watching a canadian from the night 78 that not a lot of people know about yeah that's a great point too is like yeah his while he has worked with some of the most talented people it's like I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's seen a lot of those movies. Unfortunately, at this point, you know, no. is Mash a movie that's brought up and then in the lexicon a lot? Probably not anymore. But you know, you should see it. Um, yeah, I I love him as an actor. I think he's the Long Goodbye is one of my favorite movies of all time. I just rewatched it recently. Um, his performance in that is one of my favorites. I think you'll see a lot of the nice guys in there when you go and watch it for yourself, which will be cool. Okay. Um, but yeah, report back to this dog and let me know what you think of that. Well, and also to your point about Gould like never becoming like the bigger deal than he maybe should have been is like when you look up like the Google movies for him, it's the Long Goodbye, the Mash, the, and then it's a bunch of the Oceans movies, and like that's as high as it gets for him to some regard. But he's not a main main character in the Oceans movies, right? No, he's like a old like he's 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 trying to get revenge on Andy Garcia's character, right? So like that's what I mean, like. It's just weird that I feel like if you put him, because he grows up in the perfect era of like your traditional leading man that can work within the studios, but also is really interested in the indie stuff, obviously by the silent partner. And yet this is kind of as high as it gets. And like the long goodbye is perfect because he's probably entering his mid thirties in 73 when that comes out. And yet it doesn't seem like it got much, much better for him. It's weird. A lot of the times, and I think you'll feel this way as you see more stuff with him, you'll notice Elliot Gould plays Elliot Gould a lot. And I think that might have been one of the things that held him back a little bit. I don't know if he always had that dynamic range. Um, But I, I, again, haven't seen all of his filmography either. I need to see Jack and Alice. He got nominated for that, right? So I don't really really have a leg to stand on to know but from from all the projects that i've gravitated towards that he's been in it's been a lot of them like i recognize you doing the thing where you're elliot gould and i love it but yeah i don't know if that's for everybody or if that's everybody's cup there's only so many characters written to be elliot gould so yeah right uh i think we should move on to chris Plummer's performance i mean my god this film has one of the most terrifying passages i think i've ever heard I'm just going to give you a little time to try to be reasonable. If you decide you're not going to be reasonable, and one night, when you come home, you'll find me inside, waiting for you. And that will be the night you'll wish you'd never been born. I mean, there's a jump scare right before that, and it's not traditional. It made my heart skip a beat. I don't want to spoil it with the hope more people will see this flick, but it's not like... A monster pops up from out of the corner, he's around the edge, and a dun-dun, big music score strike. It is so effective, and it's the most frightening sequence I've seen in a film probably this year. Wow. That's some high praise, Nick. I saw it. The way that that, the camera holds on that for a few seconds, and you're like waiting for it, and then that sound, and just his eyes are already there, so he's already like peeked down and pushed it through. It's just, it scared the shit out of me. He's an interesting villain because he reads like a serial killer. And I don't mean that in like, like one of the comparisons I drew to him was Wayne Grow. But Wayne Grow feels like a very exaggerated, like movie person that, you know, is like the evil of the evil. Like he's, he's racist. He's a Nazi, <laughs> like awful, awful Satan. But this character feels very much more like 
a common criminal you could find on any street in any city in any era that is a hustler and a womanizer and like an awful, awful person, but blends into the background so easily. And that's what makes him, I think, the scariest is that when you look at Christopher Plummer in the movie, he's not dressed or made to look up like a sociopath or a crazy person. He's got perfectly manicured hair. His weirdest thing he wears, he wears eyeliner, which is, you know, guy liner. You know, if you need it, mm-hmm. you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he's wearing like mesh tops, which probably would fit in with like the Canada of the late seventies and all this sort of stuff. And he just really comes across as a normal guy, but is one of the most like vile conniving evil people yeah 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 it's it's weird because i don't know he doesn't usually play this kind of role i can't remember like i think of inside man he's a pretty great villain in that but like i just don't have a strong relationship with him in the sense of him being like a young malicious bad guy he seems to me to always be the like the grandpa knives out who's like yeah you know (laughs) So there's a reason for everything, or like I said, he's inside man. He's an ex like Nazi evil piece of crap, or like in the girl with the dragon tattoo, you know. So it's very strange to me that his uh, seeing him young and seeing him play a mean person. Yeah, I sound of music sixty five. Like he's a, he's like I think he's Von Trapp. Like he's just like the yeah. cool like hot dad. And yet in this movie, it's so counter against like everything. Like, yeah. I've never seen Christopher Plummer even, like, attempt something like this. And, and again, like you, I haven't seen every single thing he's ever made, so I can't speak to it. But, like, it's not just a villain. It's, like, uh, an evil, evil soul. An evil person, yeah. yeah. I would agree. Um, let's not forget about the scene-stealing work of Celine Lomez, this mystery woman Elaine. She began acting in Canadian films at age 15 while also performing pop music. From the moment she comes into Miles' life at the, as the rival to his like co-worker Julie, I guess she's kind of more oh, Julie. chilly and off-putting with her demeanor to things. She provides extra intrigue and surprise to an already kind of twisty and windy story. But there's also like you're like there's there's something to her. There's something more to it, and they do a great job of like kind of really spooling that out and taking their time to to put the pieces together, but also keeping you in good hands and not having it be confusing. Um, fun little fact, Lomez had been considered to star on Charlie's Angels, the original television show. Wow. I wonder if that French accent got in the way. It might have. It might have tripped. But that, but that would have been cool. Like, I think the Charlie's Ang- Angels was kind I of I think like her French accent rocks. Uh, yeah. I think, I think she rocks. I just, but, but you know Americans, if they're like, oh, you don't come across as you're from Wisconsin? I don't want you on my TV set. And especially back then. She, yeah, oh yeah. She's great in this movie because when you watch this and if you're really paying attention, you pick up on it pretty quick that she's not who she says she is. And then you're like, is Miles dumb that he's going along with all of this? But like he can't be that dumb. Like I've seen him do way smarter things. And so like you said, it's this gradual like, I know who you are, but you don't know that I know. And I'm just waiting to drop my cards. But there's never this weird like Oh, you betrayed me. How could you? It's just almost like, what if we just work together? And it's such an interesting dynamic that I don't think I've seen before in a thriller where usually the femme fatale, when it's revealed, is like, oh, no, how could you do this? We have to now be opposites. We're just, oh. And yet with this, he's just like, fuck it. Fuck that guy. Let's just fucking hang out. I don't care. And I don't know if that's like the the <laughs> Canadian part of the film, right? Or like, <laughs> But to me, it felt like 
it's like, hey, you know, we're all thieves. None of us are clean. So what is an alliance to a thief? You know, where I've kind of enjoyed that kind of like um, swindling, swashbuckling, like French sense to it of like, ooh, <laughs> time to time to cross some time to cross oh. some, burn some bridges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Napoleon. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of like, a, like, a, uh, like we're going to get, we're going to get drunk together and ride off into the sunset with a trunk full of money and a vibe to it, which I enjoyed. Yeah. She's like, I'll sleep with you. And like, I don't really, I don't know if have any problems with that. Cause I like you, but I also probably will try and fuck you over later. And I guess none of us have qualms about it. It's, it's, it's interesting. Cause it's, it's, she's always like, Oh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what the better deal is, and, and then we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And but Miles is never like, oh, oh no. He's just like, all right, cool. I, I respect it. Cool. Good for you. Yeah, he's totally. He's um. Miles is a character who is fixated on whatever is in front of him. Whatever mm. his whatever is the the main goal or whatever is the main thing that's keeping his focus is is what he stays kind of blinded to but he's also acutely aware of everything going on around him because like you said he actually flips the script and reveals that he does know that she's working with him which is great after he sleeps with her too it's not like a moment of like now that i've got you in a moment of weakness i'm gonna tell you and then haha it's more like oh no i'm into this which makes me wonder like how how cognizant of everything do you think miles is because he almost comes across to me when i watch this of like I come across as the loser at work, so I'm going to take this really hot girl, even though I know she's kind of playing me, to this party so everyone thinks I'm really cool. And he's very, I don't want to say image conscious, but he is definitely a character that's like, I want to present myself as something else now. Well, we know he's materialistic, too. He wants to get you know, a new tank for his fish and get another new fish. Yeah, it's, true. So he's, he's very much a... Uh... Consumer, I would say. It's 1978. The mall is another huge location. So it's all about people at Christmas time getting gifts. Like, yeah, it's a very it's very related to, like, uh, money, I think, his character, for sure. Works at a bank. He likes, I think, being a thief, too. I think this is, like, the best thing he's game. ever done. This is fun yes. for him. This is fun and for I also him. don't think he's ever had a girlfriend before. Like, a serious girlfriend before, which is why I think... He falls for Elaine as quick as he does because, despite all of her faults, he's immediately like, "I've never had this connection with someone who gets it because I've always had to hide this part of myself." Like I could, Elliot Gould was such a good performance in this movie. I can like picture this whole guy's life where <laughs> he's kind of like um, Ray Seahorn, Kim, and Better Call Saul, where <laughs> always a do-gooder. But there's these moments in that ch- character's childhood where they're always doing something wrong that no one else notices, and it's a small thrill of like, oh, "I did it. No one cared." Or, and that's what I've always seen Miles as now. Or, and the same thing with um, Kim's character, seeing somebody who is your elder do it, and then being like, oh, that's okay to do. I can get away yeah. with that if they did it. I'm fine. I'm not doing anything Yeah, wrong. like, I, I project it all onto him in a very easy way, because Elliot Gould doesn't betray anything. Mm-hmm. He's very, very, like, I'm in the moment as this, but I also am going to give you enough to kind of project everything else around it. It's very present in every scene as an actor. He's very, very present, yes. And I don't mean that in the physical sense. I mean that in, like, the emotional and the acting sense of, of the actual, you know, film. Um, I also would like to shout out one last person here in the cast. Kind of like a Shea Wiggum, just kind of like one of the guys in the stable. Uh, young John Candy is in here for one of his first film roles. 
you can't call young John Candy one of the guys like Shay Wingham when he's like universally mourned. Shay Wing, I'm no offense to Shay, we love him. He wants to go when he dies. It's gonna be me and you and his family who are really upset about it. I'm telling you, I'm telling you who's in the dogs list right now. Who's in the stable? Okay. It's John Candy, Shay Wiggum, and yeah. it's the guy in the bathtub from the Truman Show. I got them all just chilling with me. <laughs> you can do it! Hold on! You can do it! <laughs> uh, young John Candy in here. He'd been on some sketch comedy shows and a few fi- and in a few films before, but this is when he starts to get real FaceTime. He's one of the like romantic interests of one of the ladies who works at the bank. Way out of his league. Um, but he's got this well, great comb, comb over in there. You know, what a great salute to the 1970s immaculate stuff from Mr. Candy. Somebody who's underrated as a funny man. I think he gets lost in the shuffle of the Farleys or the Carries, the Murphys and Sandlers or Belushi's. Um, but his filmography holds a really special place in my heart personally. And is another Canadian legend. So shout out to the dog. Rest in peace. We salute you. I think his character is kind of cool. I wish there was more to him because, like, we only see this one side. But Luis is is then wife. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's kind of this movie. Does this movie take place in like ten days to like a week or two weeks? Well, no, because like, there's a time jump. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's a little bit longer than that. But like, there's an interesting thing with that where like he meets this girl and yes, she's way out of his league, but she's kind of using him again. There's this whole thing in this movie that feels very seventies of like. I'm using you to get what I want into a better life for myself. Mm, you know, the, the, the Louise character sees John Candy, who's this really nice guy at a bank who's overweight, but funny and nice. And probably has a really stable job. And he's been working there long enough that he has a connection with everyone. And then she like marries him really quickly. And then is going to have another guy's kid and is fucking another guy at the same party. She came to the party with John Candy with, and this other guy doesn't come off as like, Oh, well he's cool. It's like, nah, he's a, he's, you could tell this guy's like in a sleaze ball. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's like, hey, my name's Greg. How are you? It's like, oh, God, what are you? Who, what? That scene with that subtext that you just present makes more sense, but is another scene in this movie where I was kind of like, I didn't really need this. Really he kind of just comes on the screen of like he was an extra. They're like, ah, oh, he just didn't cast this role. You want to just step in front of the camera? Because like yeah. he's like, I'm, 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 I'm evil guy. I'm, I'm a bad egg. <laughs> um, but there's also this interesting like using subtext too with like the Julie character who we should talk about now, I guess, while we're talking about performances um, of like she's using her boss and sleeping with him, not for really like any emotional or physical like thrill almost you know like it doesn't seem like she she says she loves him but i don't think she really does i don't think she does either her character is kind of weird too and then she's like the way that her and miles kind of end the film which i guess we can spoil at this point um miles gets away in the end you know yeah. weird shootout that happens in the mall <laughs> and also gets to keep the money because julie helps stash it <laughs> it's very strange it kind of ends abruptly um, and Julie's character is somebody we don't really see a lot of throughout probably the entire second act. So for her coming back and being so integral to the end of the film does feel a little bit out of place. I'm here to say it. I've been on this corner since I watched this movie. I hate Julie. It's a, it's a fine performance. I'm not slagging the actress. She does a really good job with what she's, she's in got. New York. Yeah, thank you. But she's so underwritten and like so... Like shitty for not a lot of good reasons almost of like she's sleeping with her boss 
behind everyone else's back, but also trying to like toy with Miles because she knows he likes him. And then she's jealous of him because he finally has a girl. And she's and she steals the money. It's like, yay, she's a criminal too. Isn't this great? And I would say that's kind of the same problem I have with um Selena. Elaine. Yeah, Elaine, sorry. Um is both of those characters feel very tropey of the seventies of like Yeah. There's only a few ways we write women and we'll just do these two. And I just I don't know. I, I can't I can't subscribe to that and I don't really care for it. So the, yeah, I and I also really, really kind of disdain that you brought up too is the sexual assault scene too, which feels really out of place. So there's some things in this movie that, that just kinda don't really work. I think Julie's character being one of them, but like you said, I think Susanna York is doing a really good job in the performance as Julie. I buy her She's as charming, example. yeah. Yeah, she's charming. You can understand why Miles would fall for her, but she's a shitty fucking person. Yeah. And this movie doesn't take time out of its day to be like, oh, no, there's different females that aren't bad. Like, I, I wouldn't call this a misogynistic, misogynistic movie by any means. But there's like four female characters in this, I would say. It's Elaine, a criminal slash thief who gets beheaded pretty harshly for no reason because one male studio exec is like, fuck it, I want a beheading scene. <laughs> it's, um, Luis, we just talked about who's using John Candy and having sex with someone else behind his back. And then you have, um, why am I blanking on her name? Jesus Christ. Susanna York. Uh, Julie. Julie. Julie, thank you. Who's also not a good person at all. And those are like your three main female characters. And the movie doesn't really treat any of them very three-dimensionally or very like, it doesn't give them anything to do but be the arcs, like you're saying. Yeah. It's kind of kind of weak sauce. Um, what was not weak sauce though was the box office for this film. Silent, mm. Silent Partner did well critically and financially in Canada, winning seven Canadian film awards, including director and picture. Uh, it was a big hit in Canada. It kind of had a harder time reaching us here in the United States. Uh, it was acquired in 1979 by Miami-based distributor EMC Film Corporation. Uh, it slowly made its way to major markets over several months with multiple ad campaigns hoping to find a niche, but didn't really succeed in that. However, a lot of people probably have came, come to this movie from HBO. Um, eager for new movies to showcase, contributed, they contributed seed money um, from many Canadian tax shelters in exchange for ancillary rights. So <laughs> the silent partner wound up going onto HBO basically through a little bit of a money exchange, we'll call it. Um, other Canuck classics such as The Changeling, Meatballs, and Agency also went on to HBO in heavy rotation. And over the decades, The Silent Partner has kind of found a following and in grace with multiple screenings, including a lot at the New Beverly Cinema, which is a place in Los Angeles owned by Quentin Tarantino, where it's kind of like a, um, I don't know, I wouldn't describe it as like an art house cinema. What would you call that? As like a program, a programmed It's theater? heavily curated movies, Thank I you. would say. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of picks by Tarantino himself, a lot of obscure maybe B movies that you haven't seen or whatever it may be. But this is one that has kind of played a lot there around Christmas time, along with Die Hard as like a double feature. Um, Roger Ebert summed it up in his rave review about the film. It was a thriller that was not that was not only intelligently and well acted, but very scary. Had it had the most audaciously clockwork plot I've seen in a long time. Such ironies and reversals and neatly inevitable triple crosses that it's worthy of Hitchcock. A film in which complicated people and a very complicated plot come together in a mechanism that leaves us marveling at its ingenuity. Mm. 
But is it a thriller? Is it an OR? What do you, what do we, what do we, how do we can talk this now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a noir. I think that it, but let me preface that. Go, I wa- go and, this, and this is, this is kind of a little tangent. I watched the lost, Hi- I watched lost highway the other day, the David Lynch film from 1996. And then I watched an interview with him and I was like, Oh, that kind of feels like a noir trope right there. Is it like, I'm just trying to do a noir trope. Again, somebody who I just like feel like we're just still not ready to talk about on this podcast. Not in the sense of like never be ready. Huh? You'll never be ready for David Lynch. You know Lynch. what I mean? Like in the sense that like, I just don't know how we would go about doing our podcast with a David Lynch film. Um he was talking about that and like he actually said very cagey director. He's like, Yeah, it was influenced by a lot of noir tropes. So I was like, Well, if it's influenced by the noir tropes, is it a noir? You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Just because it borrows these ideas, does that make it a part of it, or does that just mean it's borrowing them and then repurposing them? Right. Because there's a lot of other things, like Hitchcock horror tropes in this movie, like just like we were talking about, or like, you know, um, I'm thinking of... Uh, wow, I just lost it. Why can't I think of it? Notorious, where it's like um, like a spy plot, where like you just said a lot of triple crosses. Is that stuff in your art? Well, is it a Hitchcock movie? It's kind of like what we talked about Big Lebowski. Can a movie live on its own without just being a, like, it, it, it's just its influences. That's what this movie is. You know what I mean? Cause to me, I don't, I wouldn't think of this as a noir, you know, there's a, there is the trope of a femme fatale, but I completely flip that on its ear, which is fun to do. I only ask because it does very much feel like you have your one guy against the whole system, which is a very popular noir trope. Uh, Miles going against the bank. You have a criminal mastermind who's kind of the villain. You have the femme fatale. You have this eagerness of like something a little bit better that you're hoping for, but not a real possibility that it's going to come. And like a kind of pessimistic and optimistic ending that's kind of up for you to decide. Yeah, I, there's there's maybe like a postmodern noir to it. Yeah. Maybe that's where it could live on in that regards. But as a traditional noir to me, you know, those are just much more darker they usually involve a character who's been through war, some kind of tragedy. Um, the femme fatale situation usually goes a lot differently. So I don't know. I didn't I didn't really find it to be a noir. I would probably stick with probably thriller, but at some points maybe like suspense horror. I think that's probably right. And it doesn't have to fit in anything, quite honestly. No. Um, but it definitely does feel like I have a hard time with thrillers because I don't get thrilled often. You know, like I never feel like some like high. Maybe this is like a weird thing with me because I have the heart of stone. But like, I never found myself on the edge of my seat watching this. Where I was like, "Oh man, what's gonna happen next?" Yeah, I was I more know. just like, "Yeah." <laughs> like I'm not a very expressive person when I watch movies for the most part. Um, I more or less felt like, "Oh man, like I, I guess I hope Miles makes." I like Miles a lot, but I don't really feel like I, I like if he dies, I kind of get it. Like he's kind of a shitty person too. Well, I also never really feel like he's going to, you know, and, and no. never throughout the film. I'm like, Miles is in serious danger. I don't know if he's going to make it out of this one. So, which is, doesn't really make you feel that way either. Which is why there's a slight counter argument to the beheading scene, mm-hmm. which is that all of a sudden this escalates that idea of like, oh, no, like maybe Chris Plummer will actually go crazy and kill Miles. Still don't agree with its inclusion, but you can make a case. That's why it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I kind of wanted to talk about, which we hit on earlier, was just Canada is a viable film industry. We talked about TIFF and like the the community that like surrounds that festival and the movies that show up there. 
U.S. Studios moving full on production, HQs to Vancouver, Toronto. But the one guy we didn't talk about was James Cameron winning Best Director. I think that's yeah. kind of like high watermark of the achievement that we don't really think of is like someone that that's the only, I think the only person from Canada who's won Best Director. No Canadian film has won Best Picture, I don't think. So it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting thing to think about of like. I you have a question here, and I think it relates to it. Is like, are the two separate? Can you separate Canadian film from American film? I think that these kind of two questions work together because they are so symbiotic at this point. They 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 there's so much crossover and cross pollination that I think six half dozen, you know, one or the other. There's not a there's like a homogeneity almost of like culture and like nationality art. I feel. Where, like, even a movie like RRR last year, it's kind of one of the, like, lone cases I can think of where it was like, oh, that's a distinctly Indian movie that a lot of Americans enjoy. But don't view it as an extension of themselves, but see it as like, oh, Bollywood, isn't that great what they can do over there? And there's not that same feeling. And maybe it's just because we share a continent with Canada. I don't know, <laughs> because it's very easy to look at people who look like you and speak the same language as you for the most part and be like, oh, they're just an extension of us and like our culture is their culture. Um, but even like across the pond from like the England stuff to no matter where you go, it feels like if there's art that's made in a different country, it kind of just assembles into the American like culture pretty quickly without like a real like, oh, no, that's Canada's thing. It's just like it's all of ours. And maybe that's got more to do with like the increasing digital space of like we're all just people on Twitter <laughs> yeah. just posting our tweets about that and not actually people from like different cultures or backgrounds. Totally. Yeah. I think they're, they're... the other thing too is when there's like a financial like handshake agreement between the two. There is yeah. no more separation of like church and state. There is no more separation of like, like you said, you know, it just becomes homogenized. They're all kind of the same. Like Riverdale doubles as Riverdale, California. You know, it just, yeah. <laughs> there is no more, you know, like whereas this film, I really, I think this feels like a Canadian film. I know that's a weird thing to say, but you know, whether it be seeing the money in the bank and, and, and seeing the different notes or the way that the mall looks and the architecture of downtown Toronto was definitely different than other cities. It's just, it is. I feel the way that his apartment's set up. There's not an apartment that looks like that that I've ever seen in New York and the way that the right. phone booth feels and like, the, I don't know, it just feels like a Canadian film to me in that regard. It's cold all the time. The snow's on the ground. Yeah, like he his roof pops open. He has to like, be like, oh no, I'm cold again because you know, Canada. Um, <laughs> what's so interesting about this, and I think we should have mentioned this in the release part of like how hard it was for it to get ground in America. If this was made today, and was just put on Netflix, I think this could get a lot of traction that easily. And this goes to the point of how little individual culture it feels like there is for a lot of North American kind of properties, is that it all gets swallowed up in the algorithm and the apps to the point that the, the viewer, especially a common viewer, isn't looking at something and seeing like, oh, BBC beforehand and being like, oh, I wonder what that is. And just like, oh, cool, more content. Put it in my mouth. Let's go. I want to watch this. And there's not that digestion of like, oh, this is from a different place. Oh, interesting. Cool. I wonder what that's like or something like that. Um, and it's just kind of sad that like in an era where we're celebrating so much diversity and 
art, music, movies, TV shows, literature, all that sort of stuff, where it's ever more accessible to kind of tell your own story, that it never feels apart from the grand collective story. Yeah, I mean, this movie had to literally make a cash deal with HBO to to get some home yeah. box office in the United States. <laughs> it's literally the streaming thing that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's weird because I wasn't expecting this movie to kind of be so relevant and tie into so many things that are going on. But as we do the podcast, I'm noticing it kind of does. Like a great example I can think of are like two shows are on Netflix now, which is Dar- I haven't seen either of these full full transparency. But like a show called Dairy Girls, which is an Irish show about a bunch of like teenagers in Ireland. That's a huge hit on Netflix in America. But like mm-hmm. I'm sure it is overseas as well. But there's never like, oh, man, that Irish show is just like, oh, that show or a show like Heartstopper, which is a queer story about two kids in England or Ireland, whichever. I, I haven't seen it. But that's also been readily accepted by American audiences. And it's just like, oh, yeah, can't wait to see that next season. And it's not like and nothing lays claim to anything. Almost. It's kind of scary and sad. And even something that might be really culturally prominent and like. On a grand scale, I'm thinking of Squid Games. When's the last time somebody made, talked about Squid Games? Yeah. I don't remember. Came and went. It's gone. Give me something else. Yeah. Or think about the fact that a lot of people watched the dub version of that on Netflix as Netflix made it available. Yes. Yeah. Instead of just like watching the Korean version with subtitles. Yeah. Because there's ever more the increasingness of just like, I want what appeals to me and I want to understand how I want to understand it. And I want it to be instead easy. Instead of taking time. Yeah. Instead of taking time to be like, oh, let me like experience something like this because the silent partner in the 70s when you could watch it you either had to go to canada or find it and really search out for it i assume at like a vhs store or a blockbuster's time went on like you couldn't just find it and so i think this is still hard to find because exactly because we are digging something out of the past that i didn't know about beforehand and so there's just never any room anymore for like individuality it almost feels like in terms of nations I totally agree with you. I don't know. It's just a really weird state with like the whole world and the, the way I view art. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. But um, I don't think you are. So I should this movie too. And I was like, is Miles literally me? Because he's like, <laughs> but maybe this is just our ever increasing search of like, we need to find all the literally me's in movies of like the guest, the driver. I guess Miles might fit in here now because he's like, the lone single male in a big city that's like loves a girl who doesn't love him back. And it's kind of this quest of like by doing immoral deeds, all of a sudden the girl's now interested in him. I think it kind of harkens back to what you were saying about his backstory. With him having such a limited backstory, we are allowed to kind of, like you said, project onto the character. And I think the idea of being a bank teller who is underseen and underheard and wants to do something extravagant and gets pulled into this crazy plot is very much something that people can gravitate towards, right? It's it's like, oh my god, imagine if that happened to me. This movie almost like, not in plot, but almost in content, reminds me a tiny, 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 tiny bit of true romance, where it's like, mm. crazy guy or crazy guy meets a girl in a movie theater, and then he kills her pimp, and then they go on the run with drugs and money, and then it's like, it's a and-then movie, but-then movie. It's like all these kind of wild or maybe absurd things that keep happening to this person, or like completely out of their normal comfort zone and their, their traditional sense of how they view the world keeps happening to them, which I think is very good to do with a very bland and normal character who we can then kind of project ourselves onto. 
I, I think what's interesting about Miles, if we're going to classify him literally me, is that he's like law-abiding and good in a way that the other ones kind of aren't. When you think of like the iconic really means it's it's like Driver, it's Blade Runner, Ryan Gosling. I mean, throw a fucking you'll find him on it like 4chan. You know, they all worship the same guys. Joker. But like Miles inherently is, I think, a good person at the start of the movie that doesn't it's still unclear why he does it, but it's just like, oh, like I clock in for my nine to five job. I don't really feel belittled by like society or like my my boss. Like I kind of respect my boss. I just want to steal all this money from him and then I'm going to get away with it. And like, I'm smart and clever and like, I actually do fail. Like a lot of the literally me's are like perfect. Like, I think that's the appeal of them is that like, they do everything right. And they're the coolest, most badass people. Whereas like miles is jelly jar gets thrown up by a maid. Who's just doing her job. It should have the wrong day at the wrong time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like the very relatableness of like this character. That's always intriguing is that like, he's not great at any of this, but he's just trying his best. And like, it's fun. It's you a know. game. Yeah. And like, yeah. he's not, how far can I stretch the taffy? And he's not using a hammer to break someone's head. And he's just like, well, I'll hide the key in this. And then I got to call the other key guy. And then they got a land to show up and do this. And hopefully that works. And no one notices her. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I don't know if I classify him as a literally me, but I think Elliot Gould is great in this film. And uh, I enjoyed talking about it with you. I think this is a good gem, kind of an underseen one that we had on the podcast here. And, uh, I don't know when the next episode will be. I don't know when we'll be back together. I know we both got a lot going on, but Road Dogs aren't going anywhere. We're sticking around for the long haul. Are we going to mention what the next movie is? Because it's been decided. I didn't know it had been decided. <laughs> oh, we talked about it, man. Oh, well, I didn't know if you were 100% on it. Oh, I'm 100%. I'm 100%. Where are okay. we going? Where are we going? We're going to New York for some slice of pizza, baby. We're talking about the 1990 Ninja Turtles movie because guess what? TMNT Mutant Mayhem, one of my picks in the movie draft, comes out August 2nd. Go see it. Go support it. I'm going back all the way to the start, talking about one of my favorite franchises. Um, it's just a great – it's a great – it's a great movie. I'm just going to say I'm going to spoil that little juice there. I think you're going to come back next episode, Nick. But you know what, Josh? You know, I kind of made fun of you, but I was wrong. It's a great movie. Awabunga, folks. Road Dogs out.